welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series six and episode 11. And it's entitled Miracles in Gentile Territory. And we're going to be studying a passage in Mark's Gospel, Mark 7.31 to Mark 8.10. And uh, this, there's also a parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel. So we're now getting towards the end of uh, series six. Series six, um, as you'll remember if you've been with us in these episodes, describes Jesus' third tour of Galilee. His first tour marked the beginning of his mission when he came back from the River Jordan, having been baptized and come out of the wilderness, and he entered into Galilee and did amazing miracles and traveled around. That was the first phase. Then there was a moment when he gathered together his disciples and he appointed 12 of them as apostles to be with him and to have his authority uh, and subsequently to go out and preach on his behalf. And uh, so we saw all that in series three. In series four, we saw the Sermon on the Mount, which provided the uh, foundational ethical uh, teaching for the new discipleship community. Then in series five, we looked at the second tour of Galilee many more miracles, uh, many more remarkable events as Jesus traveled around. But this time he's training his apostles, uh, preparing them for what happens at the beginning of series six, the series we're now uh, nearly completing. And at the beginning of series six, we start with the sending out of the 12 throughout Galilee. So in this third tour, we've got Jesus traveling around. We've also got the apostles having traveled around in pairs and reached uh, many different parts of the area. So the message of the kingdom has really gone all the way through this northern Jewish province of Galilee by the time uh, that the events we described today are happening. But uh, as we went through series six, there are a number of other major events that are significant for where we've got to now, because we're just reaching a point where things are going to change quite dramatically. Though on the negative side, uh, we saw that the local ruler, King Herod Antipas, executed John the Baptist, who was his prisoner, quite suddenly. And that created a sense of threat for Jesus because Herod Antipas could easily turn against Jesus and imprison him or execute him or exile him. There's all sorts of things that uh, could happen. So that threat is in the background. At the same time, on the more positive side, one of the key events of Series 6 has been the feeding of the 5,000. And you remember 5,000 was just the men present, so it's probably, with women and children, 10,000 plus people on a mountainside on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. This was the largest recorded crowd in Jesus' ministry. It was a time of intense popularity. And uh, as John records in his account, which we've mentioned several times already in earlier episodes, but needs to be mentioned again now, John 6 um, and verse 15 and around that area, John explains that at the end of that event, the crowd was so excited that they wanted to take Jesus and make him king by force. That's the expression that John uses. In other words, they wanted him to become a ruling, conquering Messiah, to overthrow the local king, King Herod Antipas, to overthrow the Romans, to overthrow the corrupt religious establishment, to bring in the Messianic age, to bring 
Um, relief to the Jewish people of all the oppressions, high taxation and difficulties that they were facing under the Romans and their puppet rulers. So there was a moment of intense excitement just at that point. Now Jesus slipped away from the crowd really quickly to avoid anything like that taking place and it just represented um, an enormous contrast. So the local ruler, King Herod Antipas, could turn potentially against Jesus very suddenly. He turned against John and executed him. The crowd have got incredibly excited and yet some are getting a little bit frustrated that he's not turning into the political ruler that they want. And these are the kind of um, background events to what is happening in the episode that we see today. So I think Jesus is a feeling at this time that the, his current method of ministry in Galilee can't continue for all that much longer. Not only is there the threat from King Herod Antipas, but the religious establishment have already ruled against him as a false messiah, as we saw in an earlier episode, as recorded in Matthew 12, verses 22 to 24, and the subsequent passage. And they've called him a false messiah who's operating by evil demonic power, deluding people and misleading them. So that's already happened, but we still see that the Pharisees representing that religious establishment are on Jesus's back. They're criticizing him. They're challenging him. We've just looked earlier at an incident when they challenged him over some of their rituals, like a ritual hand washing. Why don't your disciples wash their hands ritually like all religious Jews do? And there was a big argument that took place there. Um, as recorded just in an earlier episode and uh, not so long ago. So what I'm really trying to say by way of summarising all that's happened in Series 6 so far is that a very tense situation is arising in Galilee. Very high expectations of many people that Jesus is going to create some kind of political coup. Some people really frustrated because he's not doing it. Um, his political and spiritual opponents flexing their muscles and looking for ways to trip him up um, or cause him even more damage than that. So what Jesus did in the previous episode, uh, which is the immediate thing we need to keep in mind before we come to what we're talking about today, was he took time out. He went out of Galilee. Now, the geography is very important in the Gospels, as you will have become aware by now, and it's very important to think about the different districts and areas that are involved in the reasons why people travel backwards and forwards and what's going on in each different area. Just a quick reminder that the most northern part of the Jewish territory is Galilee, where Jesus operated. Immediately south of there is Samaria, and immediately south of Samaria is Judea, the Jewish heartland uh, in which Jerusalem is situated, the capital city and really the heart of the nation. So Jesus is right in the north of the country. And in the previous episode, he decided to go with his disciples out of Jewish territory altogether to a district called Phoenicia. And the cities of Tyre and Sidon are mentioned. He went into the region of Tyre and Sidon. These are two of the principal cities in this country called Phoenicia, which used to be an imperial power, quite an important country, and roughly equivalent to the modern-day nation of Lebanon geographically. And there he performed a miracle, uh, which we described last time, of a woman who came on behalf of her daughter. 
but he went out and he was trying to be operating quietly in secret. He went into a house and he didn't want people to know he was staying there, according to one of the accounts. So Jesus is uh, moving out of the territory of Galilee for a period of time. So we don't know how long he spent in Phoenicia, but what we see now is that when he leaves Phoenicia, he goes to another Gentile territory further to the south and to the east, which we've mentioned before and we'll come back to in a moment, called the Decapolis. And he's going from one Gentile area to another. And as he travels from one to another, he's avoiding going through his home district of Galilee. So this is really quite an intriguing situation, especially as after these events, as series six comes to an end, we'll see that Jesus begins to prepare for a decisive change and moving out of Galilee altogether. But anyway, let's attend to the story. Let's look at the text. And we're going to read it in two parts because uh, these miracles are two different stories uh, of events that happen in the same area. So I'm going to just uh, read them one at a time and uh, reflect on them. So we're going to look in uh, Mark 7 verses 31 through to 37. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus has moved from one Gentile territory to another. He's avoided going back into Galilee just at this rather sensitive moment. He's gone round the north uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee and gone to the east to an area known as the Decapolis. Now, we've encountered the Decapolis once before. In Mark chapter 5 and in parallel passages, we see Jesus travelling across the Sea of Galilee from the west, which was the Jewish Galilee, his homeland, where he ministered primarily, over to the east, and he landed in the east in the Decapolis territory, and he encountered two men who were heavily demonized and oppressed by evil spirits, who'd been uh, separated from society, living among the tombs, cutting themselves, not able to dress properly, not able to feed properly, uh, in a terrible state. And they pleaded with him to help them, and he cast out the evil spirits, and they entered 
into normal life again. They were in their right minds. And uh, then the evil spirits that had been cast out, if you remember the story in an earlier episode, Jesus allowed them to go into a herd of pigs, which rushed off the side of a small cliff and fell into the Sea of Galilee to their death. This is a very unusual episode, and we're not going to go back in detail over that now, but just to remind you that this is the other time that Jesus is recorded coming into this district. And what's particularly significant about it is that the two men were so excited about what had happened to them that although Jesus told them not to go spreading the news far and wide, they did exactly the opposite. And uh, Mark describes one of these men uh, because he only mentions one, Matthew mentions two. But in Mark 5.20, Mark says specifically, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. So if you lived in the Decapolis area, not so far from Galilee, the other side of the, uh, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, then it's quite likely you would have heard this extraordinary story. It really was an extraordinary story. And these two men had quite a remarkable testimony to give. And then there was the story about the pigs going into the sea and drowning. It was a, a very remarkable story uh, of all the things that had happened on that occasion. Now, we also know that from the Decapolis area, uh, people traveled over to the other side of Galilee just to experience Jesus' ministry and some of them to receive healing. So the people in the area had some knowledge of what was going on. They weren't Jews. They didn't have a Jewish background. This area, the Decapolis, was an uh, association of 10 independent city-states um, that gathered together into one national unity. They were overseen by the Romans, but it was a Gentile territory with very few Jewish people living there, very little Jewish influence, very little knowledge of the Jewish religion or the Old Testament. Anyway, when Jesus comes, people recognize him and some people at least know that he's a healer. Some people at least know about the healing, uh, the release from oppression of those two men, as recorded in Mark 5. Uh, and some at least have been over to the other side, to the Jewish area, uh, and seen Jesus in, in action. So it's not surprising then that um, after a period of time, people brought uh, this man, deaf, who could hardly talk, and begged Jesus to place his hands on him and to heal him. The man was obviously heavily disabled in these areas uh, and Jesus healed him. But interestingly enough, he used a, a, a different technique. He didn't lay his hands on him like he often did with people, but he did something rather different. Took him aside, put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spit and touched the man's tongue and then he spoke this word, Ephatha which is an Aramaic word translated here by Mark for us from the original language that Jesus was speaking. Interestingly enough, Jesus' healings come in many different ways. Most frequently, he lays his hands on people. Sometimes he merely speaks the word 
and says that a healing will take place for someone at some distance away. And on this occasion, he uses a, a different method of healing. There's no one way that Jesus heals. There's no one technique. He could do it in any way. But here he showed real compassion for the man, engaging with him, spending time with him, using physical touch as part of the healing process to the affected parts of his body, his tongue and his ears. It's a very wonderful healing. And in verse 37, the people were, to, in the words of Mark, overwhelmed with amazement. Well, this happens again and again in the Gospels, doesn't it? People are stunned by Jesus' miracles. Wherever he goes, he creates a sensation because his miracles are so wonderful, so life-transforming, and in almost all cases, so instantaneous. People are immediately better. They're immediately recovered. They're immediately restored, whether they have some demonic oppression, whether they've got a skin disease like leprosy, whether they're crippled, whether they've got an internal condition like uh, the bleeding of the woman, whether they've got some disability like uh, deafness or blindness or dumbness, the results are absolutely remarkable. And so the crowd is excited. And so some momentum is beginning to build in the area of the Decapolis. This is Jesus' first real moment spending time there because his earlier visit as recorded in Mark 5 was very brief and he just landed on the shore and encountered these two men almost immediately that he landed. They were right close by the shore. The healing was conducted right in that area and then he left from that area very quickly and went back across to the other side of the lake. So this is the first time that Jesus is recorded as spending any significant amount of time in this particular territory and his reputation has gone before him. So this is why we have uh, the crowd gathering that is the subject of the miracle that takes place at the beginning of chapter 8. We're going to read chapter 8 verses 1 to 10. From Mark's Gospel. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also, and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven baskets of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat 
with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Well, we all know about the feeding of the 5,000. This has been in series six already as an event in an earlier episode. But here we have another very similar miracle. The feeding of the 4,000. Why is there such a vast crowd? Well, Jesus is gaining popularity here in Gentile territory as well. Uh, and the earlier events that I've described are pointing to that direction. But it is very similar to the feeding of the 5,000, which we recounted uh, in episode five of this series. Some people have thought that this is actually another version of the same event, but that's very definitely not the case. The writers, uh, Mark and Matthew, in recounting this story, are very clear that this is a separate event. And it's not surprising. Why shouldn't there be similar events? Jesus often performed similar miracles. And here he's doing another feeding miracle. But notice he says here that they've been with me three days with nothing to eat. Such is the hunger for people to find out more spiritually. They're so intrigued by Jesus that they're willing to travel around with him for long periods of time. And he has compassion on them. So often in the Gospels, Jesus' miracles are stated to have arisen out of compassion. This is a clue for us. If we want to see the supernatural power of God working in our lives, the compassion within us for people and human situations is often one of the crucial channels through which God works. And it was wonderfully demonstrated in the life of Jesus. There is an interesting ethnic contrast here. The feeding of the 5,000 was to a large extent a Jewish miracle a Jewish audience, a Jewish group of people on uh, the side of the mountain by Bethsaida, a Jewish area further north than we are in this incident. And here we have a Gentile miracle because it's a largely non-Jewish group of people who make up this 4,000 if they are assumed to be residents of the Decapolis. And that's a very fair assumption because that's where Jesus is. Now, this is quite interesting because one of the themes of Judaism is that when the Messiah comes in all his glory and power at the end of the age, he will bring about what's called the Messianic banquet or feast. This is referred to by Jesus uh, in Matthew 8 verses 10 to 12, which we've looked at a number of times. Uh, but let me just read verse 11 from Matthew 8. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this concept of the feast is the messianic feast or banquet. And people coming from the east and the west is a reference to Gentiles coming in alongside Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the founders and patriarchs of the nation of Israel and the representatives of the Jewish ingredient in the messianic kingdom. So the fact that there's a, a, a Jewish feeding of the 5,000 and a Gentile feeding of the 4,000 seems to me to have a, a great symbolic significance that in God's kingdom 
these two ethnic groups are going to be joined together in a wonderful way. God worked through the Jewish people in the Old Testament period in order that they may become as a nation and Christ as the Messiah and Christ's people as the church, that they may become a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 49 verse 6. And the Gentiles then come into salvation. So there's something prophetic about this particular event. But the disciples still struggle to have faith. They're still debating with Jesus. Well, how on earth are you going to feed these people? You know, there's so many of them. We're so far away from the shops and access to food and have we got enough money and all the questions that arose in the feeding of the 5,000, which only happened a very short period of time beforehand. All those issues arise again here, which shows the disciples were still struggling to have faith. But as they watched what Jesus did, he did a very similar miracle as he had done with the feeding of the 5,000. Now, thinking about these two miracles, miracles in Gentile territory, I want to give you one or two concluding reflections so we can make some application of this. First of all, let's reflect on Jesus's compassion. In these two stories, we see Jesus's compassion for an individual in need, the, the man he healed at the end of Mark chapter 7, and a huge crowd of 4,000. Jesus has compassion for the individual. He also has compassion for the vast multitudes of humanity that exist in different ethnic groups, different geographical locations and different periods of history. His compassion extends to the individual, but it extends to the multitude. This is who Jesus is. And so you as an individual, as you're listening to this, can know for certain that Jesus has compassion on you and he can see you as an individual and your needs and your situations. But you can also know for certain that he has compassion on your community, your society, your nation, your town, your city and the people around you and their spiritual needs in the same way that he had compassion on these huge crowds, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. He's just motivated by love to provide for them. Another reflection would be concerning the unbelief of the disciples or the hesitancy of their response to Jesus when he suggests that he's going to feed the 4,000. This seems surprising on the face of it because fresh in their memory is what Jesus did so recently on the mountainside outside Bethsaida. But that tells us something about the human heart. It tells us something about ourselves in our walk of faith. We can easily forget or marginalise in our thinking the miraculous and wonderful things that God has done. And one of the ways that we can strengthen our faith is to remember what God has done in similar situations in the past. I, like you, struggle with the daily demands of life and the challenges of faith to believe for miracles and impossible things in many different situations. But what I can learn from this, and I hope this is helpful for you as well, is that if I remember what's happened before, 
I'll be strengthened in my faith for what might happen now. If the disciples could clearly focus on what Jesus did with the 5,000, they'd have had a more confident response when Jesus proposed to do something similar for the 4,000. So let's remember the things that God has done. Thank him for past miracles because it strengthens our faith for the present and for the future. This miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, is another example of God's power to multiply and provide for his people. It is a principle of the kingdom of God that multiplication will take place as we use the resources we have and as we put them at God's disposal. And again, this is what happened with the available uh, loaves and fish. We have seven loaves here and a few small fish. And again, as they're made available, so they multiply. God will always multiply the resources that we put at his disposal if we're walking by faith, living by the Spirit and obeying the things that he calls us to do. So there are many things we can learn from these two remarkable stories. We see the bigger picture of what's happening in series six and in the life of Jesus, and we'll talk more about that in the next episode as series six comes to an end. But we can also learn things uh, about the journey of faith and God's inclusiveness and his desire to involve many different groups and different nations in the kingdom of God. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.